This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to learn more and get 10% off your first month. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, behind the scenes in New York City's immigration courts. Our most recent episode was co-reported with Documented, a nonprofit news site that covers immigrants in New York City from tenants' rights to healthcare to ICE arrests. They brought us the story of Wendy and Elvis, a Central American couple, navigating a complicated and punishing asylum system shaped by policies put into place by the Trump administration. And Wendy and Elvis's story is just one that reporters and journalists from Documented have reported on. In 2019, Documented sent six journalists into the courts to observe the human impact of restrictive immigration policies. For three full months, they sat in New York City's immigration courts from the time they opened until they closed, five days a week, observing hundreds of hearings. Today, the two co-founders Founders of Documented, Max Siegelbaum and Mazin Sidahmed, are here to talk with us more about that project and what their work has revealed. Max and Mazin, welcome to Latino USA. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Hi, thanks for having us. All right. So tell me how you get started with this idea to basically observe every single minute of the immigration court system. So people would say that they would never let you in. But you guys actually did it. So what was your aim and why did you do it? Max. So we had been covering immigration courts since we started publishing, which was in the summer of 2018. And we had watched since Jeff Sessions was attorney general back then. And we had watched him issue policy decision after policy decision that um, had serious detrimental impact to the people who are passing through the court system. And we knew this through data and we knew it anecdotally. You know, we just knew it was generally harder to ask for asylum and just be in the court system. So what we didn't know is what it looked like. And the immigration court is very different from federal or state courts. You know, it's, it's very closed off. There are no court records accessible to the public. Even court hearings are hard to get into. So there's no real way of sort of opening up the hood and looking inside. So we knew what happened at a statistical level, but what we didn't know was what it looked like and what it felt like and what it was just like to be a person passing through this system. I'm wondering if you can take us back to that first week and that first day. Was there something that surprised you that first day, Mazin? Well, the it was funny, actually. The first day, the immigration courts were closed because of a snowstorm. So there, we showed up, and there were dozens of people waiting outside with no idea why the courts had been closed or, or what this meant for their hearings. Um, people, Some people, you know, travel from Long Island and 
all over the state to come to these hearings, to be there at 8 a.m., you know, sometimes waking up at 4 in the morning, only to arrive and find out that their, their hearing that they've been waiting for for years has been rescheduled. So that was a very good indication, I guess, of the kind of chaos that um, the, the reporters were about were going to see over the coming weeks. So this is a pretty massive process, right? Um, and there are, in fact, hearings, the hundreds of hearings a day. So what were the specific things that your reporters were looking for or tracking? So we were tracking a number of different things. Um, for each hearing, the court reporters collected the basic information, you know, the name, date of birth, the judge's name, the immigration attorney's name, the ICE attorney's name. But then there were other factors, like did they even have an attorney? You know, we witnessed a number of immigrants um, who were unrepresented in their hearings, and we know that that can have huge ramifications for their cases. For detained hearings, we also wanted to monitor what it was like for um, immigrants who were being video teleconferenced in. One of the things that the, the Trump administration had used a lot more than previous administrations is video teleconferencing of immigrants who were in jail. And that technology causes a number of issues. Um, and there's been a lot of malfunctions that often lead to immigrants spending longer in detention. And then we marked a number of the major decisions that Attorney General Jeff Sessions had made during that time, making it so that um, people who were victims of gang violence and domestic violence could no longer use that as a grounds for asylum, you know, changing the ways in which judges could manage their courtrooms, preventing them from delaying hearings or terminating hearings or closing hearings that they thought were going on unnecessarily. So we tried to track all of those different things and see how they were coming together. Talk to us about how you figured out the issue of access. And I'm wondering, were there challenges from court officials when they saw that you were in their courtroom? Max? Yeah, so if the person whose case it is says you're allowed to be in there, then it's okay. But from the beginning, they faced just an immense amount of pushback from everyone, from immigration judges to ICE attorneys. People would do things like the ICE attorneys would say to the immigrants, are you really sure you want all the details of your case broadcast on the internet and just sort of hammer mm. at that point over and over and over until the person was just like, no, actually, I don't want you in here. Sometimes some of our reporters would get singled out by ICE attorneys, by specific ones. You know, there was one who would follow our reporters out into the hallway and sort of like accost them outside of the courtroom. But all of our reporters were extremely tough and they just kept going back. So all of this work, all of this reporting, all of these collection of data and stories, um, it's a lot to sum up, but what would you say are some of the main takeaways that you had when you ended the project? Yeah, I would just say the New York court historically was was a lot friendlier. Um, you know, the immigration court system as a whole, maybe not, but the New York court in particular, the judges that work there, the system in place, you know, New York is one of the only cities in the country that has a public defender system for immigrants. You know, this is unprecedented pretty much all around the country. Um, but that system and so many other systems that are in place in New York to make them 
more equitable and and um, more similar, I guess, to the kind of due process rights that you might get in a criminal court, were just piece by piece dismantled over the course of three years. Um, and it was pretty stunning to see that play out and and the the impact that that had on on a number of immigrants' cases and lives. And this didn't just happen overnight. You know, it was a very concerted effort on the behalf of the Department of Justice to make all of these little incremental changes in policy and legal decisions that have amounted to this. And now with COVID-19 and this pandemic and New York being the epicenter, the immigration system and the asylum system in many ways has just ground to a complete and total halt. Uh, The Department of Justice has halted all hearings for non-detained immigrants. They continue to have hearings for those who are currently detained. So can you tell us what about those hearings? And are courts able to make this happen with concerns about COVID-19 spreading? Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating time, um, what's happening right now in the immigration courts, because this unprecedented alliance has formed between three groups that rarely work together on anything. So immigration judges, immigration lawyers, and prosecutors who work for ICE have all come together in this unified front to call on the Justice Department, which oversees the immigration courts, to shut them down during the pandemic. Um, And they've all come together because, quite frankly, they're scared for their lives. I don't think there's ever been a moment where they've worked this closely. Despite this, the DOJ has insisted on keeping immigration court hearings, as you said, going for immigrants who are in detention. You know, that even includes children who are in shelters as well. They also have to appear for their immigration court hearings. You know, I spoke to an attorney who said that she represents children. She went into 26 Federal Plaza during the pandemic um, with a group of children who had their hearing that day. And the court staffers were literally spraying Clorox into the air as some sort of way to try and disinfect the environment. You know, there is not really adequate protections or safeties put in place for the staff that have worked there. And a number of court staffers have contracted COVID-19. You know, there have been court closures because court staffers have tested positive for the virus. The DOJ has now taken up the policy of tweeting out at 11 p.m. the night before to let people know that the court will be closed because somebody has tested positive and then reopening it a few days later with very little explanation. So the CDC guidelines that a lot of people have been calling for don't seem to be implemented at the immigration courts. Well, Max and Mazin, thank you so much for your work and for joining me on Latino USA. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Max Siegelbaum and Mazen Sidahmed are the co-founders of Documented, a nonprofit news site that can be found at documentedny.com.
That's it for today. Latino USA is produced by Miguel Macias, Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoca, Ginny Montalvo, Alisa Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar, with help this week from Raúl Pérez. We're edited by Sofia Palizacar and Luis Treyes. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholt. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our intern is Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, you can find us on all of your social media. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by New York Women's Foundation. The New York Women's Foundation, funding women leaders that build solutions in their communities and celebrating 30 years of radical generosity. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Face masks have become the new normal as we continue to grapple with the ongoing pandemic. But when did we start wearing masks for our health and safety? This week on Throughline, the origins of the N95 mask and how it became the life-saving tool it is today. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present.